Okay, well, let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this morning, this Lord's Day morning, gathering us here together again. And now this time as we uh, get to look into your attributes, into who you have revealed yourself to be to us, we pray once again as we open these things up, as we open up your word, that we would be left with, uh, filled with praise, wonder, adoration, and uh, coming to grab something more um, of the fringes of your ways this morning as we look at these things, particularly at your independence. We pray that you would hear these things for the sake of Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Okay, so a couple book recommendations again before we start. I had mentioned George Swinnock, The Incomparableness of God. I believe is the title. It comes under two titles. One is a little banner paperback. The other is a newer one put out by RHB. I meant to bring it and donate it, so there will be a copy out there next time. But it's a wonderful little devotional on the attributes of God, and the reason I like it so much is because, one, the chapters are so bite-sized, but also because... He goes through, as he goes through the attributes, he starts and takes you through the incommunicable attributes, and then he begins to show how they relate to each other, um, which I find to be especially helpful. And then to conclude that, he goes on to show the attributes in relation to creation, salvation, daily life. Um, Wonderful little book. The other two are two books on the sermons of the late John Webster. These have been excellent devotional material for us as a family. You're free to ask Melissa if she agrees with me, if she shares the same opinion, but I find them to be delightful. uh, You would probably call them homilies. They're anywhere from five to seven pages, but very rich. And the reason I recommend those especially is the way that he draws out in the midst of God's grace, in the midst of salvation, the person of our triune God as he relates and ties those things into these little homilies. They're very rich. Um, I can't say I've ever read one and went away wishing I didn't read them. And very short. He doesn't waste a lot of time. So those, uh, those titles are, one, the first one is Christ, Our Salvation. And the other one that we're currently reading right now is Confronted by Grace. So two recommendations. And now looking at a summary of what we looked at last time I was here in terms of God's oneness. God is one in his being. We saw that. He is not made up of all his attributes, but ontologically or in his existence, he is one. He is single. We saw how that relates to us ethically. We worship one God. Um, We're commanded to do so. And then we also saw the implications that it has for the Trinity. Um, the trinity of persons does not equal multiplicity of gods. And we looked at several portions of scripture to demonstrate that, particularly 1 Corinthians 8, 6, and uh, a couple of other passages that showed us that uh, God is three, but God is one in essence, three persons, one essence. And so now we move into the doctrine of God's independence. Independence, a saiety, Freeness, uh, the titles that you'll see this referred to will be various in your systematic theologies or whatever text you're in. I like to call it, I'm going to call it independence, and we'll frequently refer to it throughout the lesson. 
Um, but our first definition is aseity. This is really getting at the heart of what the doctrine is. That's awe from and say self, from selfness. God exists in and of himself. He has life in and of himself. He does not depend on anything or anyone for his being. He's free from his creation. He stands in no need. The second London uh, in paragraph two, sorry, chapter two, paragraph one gives us a little snippet. The Lord, our God is but one only living and true God whose subsistence or existence is in and of himself. And then it's filled out even more broadly in the second paragraph stating God having all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself is alone in and unto himself, all sufficient not standing in need of any creature which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things. The fullness of being in and of himself. That's my, that's my statement there at the end. I included that in the second one. In. And then Gerhardus Voss gives us another a short definition, that attribute of God by which he is the self-sufficient ground of his own existence and being. And as we consider divine aseity, as we consider independence, we can't ignore um, Trinitarian language. We can't avoid getting into the Trinity. We have to consider this as we approach this doctrine. This is the positive aspect of aseity. The negative aspect would be does not depend on something. The positive would be he's the fullness of being the triune God dwells in an eternal triune blessedness and fullness of being an eternal fecundity. That's a word that some of the older theologians use. It means fruitfulness out of this blessedness and fullness flow, all things in creation and salvation. We could think of it as the overflowing as overflowing this fullness of God overflowing into creation. Creation isn't necessary for God's fullness, aliveness, blessedness, love, fellowship, fruitfulness, whatever. He is all of these in himself as God triune from all eternity to eternity. Any created thing is purely benefit, only made to proclaim the glory of God and this glory that is from eternity. And now we'll look at a little uh, definition here in the context of creation. This is from John Webster's, uh, the title I think is The Immeasurable God. But he says, God's outer works are most fully understood as loving and purposive when they're set against the background of his utter sufficiency. That would be another way of saying independence or aseity. When set against the background of his utter sufficiency, against the fact that no external operation or relation, creation, can constitute or augment his life, which is already infinitely replete. Once this is grasped, the nature of creaturely being begins to disclose itself as pure benefit, intelligible only as God is known and loved in his inherent completeness. And so these are some of our preliminary definitions. I would really encourage you to meditate as you have time this week on this last quotation from John Webster here, as I've already mentioned in our intro. Um, he is full of very rich stuff when it comes to the, the doctrine of God. So, Next, we'll look into some scripture proofs. 
for our doctrine. Maybe not so much scripture proofs, but we're going to look at Exodus. We're going to sort of do an overview and have some highlights, some stopping points as we work through. Exodus 3.14 here is the probably the most frequented passage when discussing God's aseity, when discussing his independence. And God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am has sent me to you. We note the fact that he has a name that doesn't, he doesn't share with others, already tells us of the otherness of God. And combining that with the idea that this name primarily conveys existence, this name, by consequence of that, is incommunicable and incomparable. It's going to be like unto his being. What does the name mean? It means eternality, infinity, independence, unchangeableness. Those are generally the things that people see coming out of this name. His essence is to exist, which means he necessarily exists. He does so from eternity to, to eternity, and it must be of himself. And it's, if that's the case, he cannot be limited in any way, implying infinity and unchangeability. And so he gives his name to the sons of Israel as Moses is going to address the people. He gives his name to it. Like, so what? What's, what's the big deal here? What's this going to communicate? Well, the big deal about his giving his name is, or the, the question is, could it afford them consolation or comfort? And the answer is yes. God had made promises to the patriarchs. Those promises were made hundreds of years ago. And the self-interpreting, self-determining nature of God affords them great confidence and comfort. I am infinite, independent, and unchangeable in my being. The current circumstances aren't a hindrance to me. I will accomplish all of my holy will in spite of what's going on, in spite of what this looks like to you. And what we'll see in the rest of the book of Exodus, essentially, is he's going to interpret his name. He's given us his name here. Now I'm going to interpret it for you. And the first stop is with Pharaoh. Um, I don't have the scripture passages on there. I believe that's somewhere in four or five. But Pharaoh said, this is Pharaoh responding in one of his first responses to Moses. Pharaoh said, who is Yahweh that I should listen to his voice to let Israel go? I do not know Yahweh. And also, I will not let Israel go. So Pharaoh, with all the Egyptian pantheon of deities before him, is thinking, I don't, there's no Yahweh here. Never heard of him. Nope, not letting you go. And what's going to happen is, he says, I don't know this Yahweh. Well, you're about to meet him. You're about to meet him in the fullness of who he is. Um, moving forward, we have Exodus 8. Oh, that's a bummer. I don't have my... Do you guys have the scripture text on there? that They just must have deleted. Okay. So I believe this is 9. I think we're in 9. And he says, this is the Lord speaking... For this time I will send all my plagues against your heart and amongst your servants and your people, so that you may know that there is no one like me in all the earth. For if by now I had sent forth my hand and struck you and your people with pestilence, you then would have been wiped out from the earth. But indeed, for this reason I have caused you to stand in order to show you my power and in order to recount my name through all the earth." Scott Swain says this is essentially the purpose statement of the plagues. Yahweh 
has not met his equal in Pharaoh. Just as he is independent in his being, so in his power, so in his purposes. They are independent of the creature. He is using Pharaoh to get glory for himself. And Rahab is going to hear about it. Joshua 2, I think this is Joshua 2, uh, it's like 8 and 9. For we have heard how Yahweh dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. And what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan, to Sihon and Og, whom you devoted to destruction. Indeed, we heard it, and our hearts melted, and a courageous spirit no longer rose up in any man because of you. For Yahweh your God, he is God in heaven above and on earth beneath. And as we consider this purpose statement of the plagues, how does this immediately apply to us? What's the immediately spiritual implication for us from this? What comes to mind? You know, the purpose statement here, Yahweh is not met as equal in Pharaoh. He's just going to use him to get glory for himself. What's the immediate spiritual implication for us from that? Man is about that big. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. In the relative Yeah. How about why not be used willingly instead of... Uh, so, so if God gets glory from his enemies, well, he gets, he gets glory from his friends too, but... How about let's be his friends? <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And you think about any attacks that we have, the spiritual warfare that goes on with us, right? Any temptations that come our way. Um, God is using those to get his own glory. He's using those for our good. He's not dependent upon anything to bring us goodness, to bring us to glory. I mean, that's a glorious you know, thought to think about that. He is using even the whole evil, spiritual darkness, all that is working for our own good. I mean, that's an amazing thought. And so moving forward, we, we jump ahead to Exodus 33. And Moses wants to see the glory of God. This is on the heels of the golden calf incident. One com- commentator understands the situation as Moses not knowing how to pray for himself or for the people. So he asked God to see his glory. Give me a further look in what you're going to do. God will not, but instead he proclaims his, tells him he's going to proclaim his goodness to him. And notice the construct here. I highlighted on page two, or whatever page that is for you, I am, I am. In Exodus 33, it's the exact same construct. I will, I will. Let's read the text. In 33, 18 and 19, Then Moses said, I pray you, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim the name of Yahweh before you, and I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious, and I will show compassion on whom I will show compassion. What he's saying there is just as my being, so in my acts, so in my goodness. It is infinite, independent, and unchangeable. God is an inconsumable fire. You think of the burning bush. The bush burned, and it didn't depend upon the bush to continue to burn. And so how is this sinful people going to dwell with this God as a consuming fire? His mercy is independent. And it appears that Moses understands something of this, as is implied in his response. Then Yahweh passed by in front of him and called out, Yahweh, Yahweh God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children 
and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. And Moses made haste to bow low toward the earth and worship. And he said, if now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, I pray, let the Lord go along in our midst, even though they are a stiff-necked people, and pardon our iniquity and our sin, and take us as your own inheritance. And so we see, he proclaims his name, his name is his existence, but he shows that as he acts throughout the exodus and throughout his people wandering through the wilderness, that his actions towards his people, towards his enemies, is the very same as his existence. And moving forward, we have him as independent in his life. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And from this, we see his independence and his other attributes, this connection that we have, this inner, inner connection between the attributes of God. He is independent in his will. And all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And no one can strike against his hand or say to him, what have you done? Worthy are you, O our Lord and our God, to receive glory, honor, and power. For you created all things, and because of your will they existed and were created. His will makes things to exist, whether they ask for it or not. He is independent in his love. This is Hosea 14.4. I will heal their turning away from me. I will love them freely for my anger has turned away from them. And then as we already saw in the Exodus, he is independent in his power. And last point, he is independent in his counsel and intellect. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be repaid to him? Nobody informed him, and nobody counseled him. We'll move on to practical uses here. Before we move forward, are there any comments or questions? Sure. Yeah, yeah, very good question. Yeah. How do you explain that, and also how do you explain that in terms of us, his creatures are limited by their concept of time. Yeah, yeah. So what you said in that statement seems weighty in yeah, the fact yeah. that we can't, because if, if his ways are as his existence, it's from eternity. Right, right. So he's not like just re- reacting. Right. To things that are happening in the concept of time that we have. Yeah. So how can you kind of elaborate on that? Yeah. Okay. So first, his ways. So when he acts, he acts like himself. Right. He doesn't come into time, enter into time and become a creature with us when he acts. So this is who he is from eternity to eternity. When he acts, it's the same God. It's the same eternal God, um, which was demonstrated in, you know, the way that he acts toward Pharaoh, the way that he acts towards Israel and showing his mercy. So what was the second question then? How does that? Yeah, in terms of our concept of time, Yeah. how can we possibly understand that God's ways are as his being? Yeah, I, I really, that's a good question. We really can't. 
because we don't have any concept for infinity or eternity in terms of our creaturely uh, limitedness. I mean, the, the finite can't comprehend the infinite. We can confess it. I mean, we can see it and observe the situation. We can experience those things and understand from the scriptures that they're true. But in terms of really like actually explaining it or wrapping our minds around it, um, that's beyond that's beyond us. And um, I think that's one of those points where, you know, I'm not just punting the ball away here. It's one of those points where we're just really left in adoration. You know, that's something where we can't really speak any further than that when it comes to saying, how can, you know, how do I grab hold of or how do I wrap my mind around the fact that God is eternal and yet he's acting in the midst of uh, a finite created temporal creation? Is that kind of what yeah, answer it? I'm just trying to think about how to even talk about the disarm. Yeah, yeah, no, that's... If God's ways are fixed from eternity, then, and he's not just reacting and responding to the things, but he's still interacting with his creation at the same time. That's what I'm trying to figure yeah. out in my mind, how that all kind of goes together. Yeah, no, that's a good question. I think there's a quote at the end of here that'll answer that, but it does, it gets at the wonder of, you know, how gratuitous creation is, how free creation is, and how independent God is from creation. We see it, it's almost a spilling over of God's eternal being, of his eternal triune life. It's almost as if, you know, Webster says in uh, one of the books that I'm reading on this, it's almost, you know, like we expect it to happen. Like we expect that there should be creation, but yet it's free. It's not necessary. But it's almost like this spilling over, this bubbling over of God's eternal triune full life that we can't ever really account for. We can't ever really account for the fact that, like, why did God create, you know? We know that he tells us abundantly in Scripture he didn't need it, right? He was f- totally free from it. But yet, in goodness and love, he did. And he does it in a way that we have creaturely freedom, which is amazing, too. We're free to act, um, you know, there's nothing. We're, we're not constrained to do this or that. We wake up and we are free. But yet God has determined the end from the beginning. Um, and as he's orchestrating these things, it's all before him as one eternal present. And we can't, <laughs> that's, we don't understand that. We've never looked at anything. We can't even look at today as one eternal present. We have to recount. I have to go backwards and then work forward. You know, when we get home tonight, Lord willing, safely, you know, I can't look at the day as one present before me, but I can recount the events of what took place and... But with God, it's not like that. He doesn't learn. Um, You know, there is no succession. He just is. (laughs) His existence is identical to his being. Everything is before him as one eternal present. Everything comes into being as a result of his will. Um, So, is that more to? Okay, okay. Yeah. I think Edwards has a good treatise on creation. On God's aseity and creation, I'm calling it to mind. All I'll try to dig that up throughout the next several weeks. But he talks about that, uses language like that. So um, one practical uses 
It shows us the fact that creation, God's creation is an overflow of his love and goodness rather than some felt need. This improves our worship, wonder, and adoration of our triune God. How often do we sit and ponder the astonishing fact that God did not and does not need creation? Listen to Webster here. The doctrine is chiefly concerned, that is the doctrine of creation. The doctrine is chiefly concerned not so much with causal explanation of what is, with contemplation of the fact that what is might not have been and yet is, and of the infinite bliss of God who lies on the other side of that might not have been. So that wonder of creation might not have been. This is our starting point is what Webster's saying. We start by being filled with this wonder, this contemplative wonder of God, self-sufficient, alone as our triune God, not needing anything. Everything should flow out of that. How often do we contemplate God in his own eternal blessedness? We cited the Nicene Creed when we were in Fargo every Lord's Day, and I love how it starts. We believe in one God, the Father, maker of heaven and earth. I would always call to mind that fact as we're starting that and confessing that. Not just this rote, you know, relaying of the confession, but the fact that God created all things and he didn't need it. Two, it means, it's a means of stirring up our faith. It was to be so for Israel and the same is for us. He doesn't depend upon anything or anyone for bringing you to glory. He will do it. And three, tied to that comfort, we lack many things. We want to be something and we cannot be it. How comforting to know that the one in whom we depend depends on nothing and no one. It is from his independent being that we actually receive all things and all blessings. They flow right out of him, overflow, if you will, right out of the fullness of his being. He doesn't need to go fetch blessings. He doesn't borrow from another, he is, inex- he is an inexhaustible fountain of blessing to us because in and of himself, he is the fullness of blessing for us. In our prayer and worship, when we pray, we acknowledge that the Lord alone is independent, that he doesn't need things to line up before he executes his will or answers to our prayers. And worship, this is from one of John Webster's sermons that I had referenced. Worship is acknowledgement. It is recognition of the absolute superabundance and limitless majesty of God. Worship is without measure because God is without measure. There can be no end to our praises for there is no end to the divine glory. Worship recognizes the supreme worth of God. It is the astounded cry which is drawn from us when we know ourselves to be in the presence of the one who sums up in himself all goodness, all truth, and all beauty. Worship is the repetition and celebration of the utter fullness and aliveness and holiness of God. In the end, worship says only one thing. God is God. God is this one, supremely great. Worship doesn't ascribe anything to God. It is not a statement of the value that we think God has. Nor is it flattery, hoping somehow to win favors. Worship acclaims that from all eternity, in all his ways and works, God is the perfect one. And last point is, his will is free from you and me. But he freely willed that we would be his people from all eternity. What a blessed thought. His love is free, but he loved us in Christ before the foundations of the world. That's Ephesians 1. His mercy is free, yet he has shown us, you and me, mercy today. If you are a new creation, then this is delightful news to you. Any further comments, questions before we close? All right. Pastor Paul, will you close us in prayer, please? Father, we do come here to worship you today in the beauty of holiness. 
praise with all of our being, the one whom we worship, realizing that we cannot comprehend you, but we stand in awe of you, and yet you have made things personal for us, to us, by working in us, based upon what our Lord Jesus Christ has done for us, sending him into the world as the perfect representation of your being. So we pray that our worship would grow in our hearts, that our hearts would be expanded by the truths that we have heard, that we would be able to offer you the worship and the glory due your name today, even, and to fully engage you with the powers of our being in a way that you help us to understand you better. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.